0: Hello, and welcome to another season of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Native American artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bearers, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of Canada, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Native American community from around the region and country. So season two is really starting off on a strong very strong note and i couldn't be more excited and nervous about our interview with the next guest not because i'm intimidated but because i'm so humbled by um, the acceptance of our invitation for this interview john quick de c smith is a citizen of the confederate salish and kootenai tribes of montana she has spent her career um, as well i mean really she's an art advocate uh, she is a Political activist, she is an educator and a mentor to so many people, an inspiration to so many people. Um, that uh, to have her on this program is an absolute honor. So I could gush for ten minutes about this uh, this interview, but I think we should just jump into it. Uh, we were joined uh, by her son Neil, uh, who provided some really great insight into this conversation, and this is absolutely uh, worth a listen. So. Uh, Please join us, and let's jump to this interview with John Kutisi-Smith. John Kutisi-Smith, thank you so much for joining us at Five Plain Questions. It's such an honor and privilege to have you with us.
1: It's a great honor for me to be here, Joe. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: And with us is uh, your son, Neil. Neil, thank you for, for joining us as well.
2: Thank you, Joe. It really is an honor.
0: So uh, with five plain questions, um, I think we're just going to jump into this. Uh, Would you be able to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from?
1: I was born um, at the Indian Mission um, on uh, St. Ignatius Mission um, on the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Reservation in Montana, and I lived there, and my father was a horse trader. He didn't read and write very well, Um, so he mostly did itinerant kinds of jobs, but horse trading was his first love. So um, we moved around quite a bit, Um, but then uh, when I was older, um, like out of my teens, I went home regularly, and I had a cousin there who was like a brother to me, Gerald Slater, who founded Salish Kootenai College. And I would go and stay with him and uh, participate in all kinds of activities at the college. Um, And um, and to this day, you know, I still participate with things at home. Um, So... uh, as well as out here, uh, I do a lot of activist kinds of things, as well as make my work.
0: So currently, you are in New Mexico? Yes. OK. How long have you been in New Mexico?
1: Uh, for about, I think, about 30 years, maybe. OK. Okay. But I traveled out of here a lot. So uh, though I'm based here, I was always on the road doing lectures, exhibitions, teaching, doing workshops, uh, that sort of thing. And since COVID hit us, uh, I haven't been traveling um, right now.
0: Who were, or who are uh, your biggest influences?
1: There's, there are probably uh, lots, uh, lots of influences from, you know, traveling in Europe, traveling in China, you know, Mexico. Um, but I would say that some some continuous ones, Oscar Howe, and um, I was going to read a poem that I wrote uh, three years after I met Oscar, and I got my master's degree. Uh, Fritz Scholder was definitely one. Uh, Frida Kahlo, Plateau Pictographs, Petroglyphs, Mayan art, Aztec art, Mexican art, Tamayo, those kinds of things have been a heavy influence in my work. I think of my work, I guess, maybe as fusion because it combines lots of things. Shall I read my poem? Oh, please. Um, Okay, I spent an afternoon in about 1977 uh, with Oscar Howe, I was at um, an anthropologist um, conference, and uh, I took the afternoon off and went across campus because someone had told me that um, Oscar Howe was um, in class, and uh, so he was very, he was very kind, very soft voice, very gentle. Uh, He was in a wheelchair, and um, I kind of just listened to him talk. He had students in the room as well. So I used this in my master's thesis, and the title is Divide and Fill the Space, he said. The problem is space, he said. I have studied space. How do you study space? question mark. Well, you take a piece of paper, you study the paper, the paper is space. And what he was saying is that the space itself is the important part of the painting. The actual drawing and coloring divides and fills the space, almost as in a religious ceremony. This is the Oscar Howe method of teaching. Divide and fill the space, he said. Terrestrial, supernatural, and geographical boundaries are described in oral tradition. A geographical area gives the people an accountable origin of arrival. This maintains a sense of place. Oceans, mountains, rivers, streams, and canyons define territorial space before the advent of surveying and barbed wire. Mystical and spiritual borders existed to explain the universe. Astronomical observations are preserved in petroglyphs. Seasons are marked in moons. Astronomy in elaborate myths. Indian peoples still define themselves in terms of boundaries of their worlds. To keep collective identity intact and to establish order for themselves. Divide and fill the space, he said. Cubes block strokes of dense pigment interplay between massive passages of loosely rubbed pigment, building isolated structures to separate oneself from surroundings. Says something specific in all cultures about concentration, privacy, distinctiveness, even ritual. Solitary forms evoke sensations of sanctuary, Isolation and disparateness, it is a part of humanness to denote occupation for physical and psychic security, whether it's real or by analogy. Creating one's own environment is a house-building urge that varies with the feelings toward the landscape. A section of paint, or marks, becomes a new environment for the artist. Divide and fill the space, he said. That's it.
2: (sighs) That's good. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) That reminds me of um, Susan Rosenberg. She said something like, um, I'm looking for a reflection of something, a yearning for a better integration with space and the world around it. In fact, space might be more important than the image. Hmm. It's great.
0: There was a lesson that Oscar, Oscar Howard would, uh, would teach in the classroom and he would have his students um, rotate the paintings as as they were working on them and he was he was very intentional about the use of space. And so yeah, it was it was these were stories that were shared with me uh, by some of his students. Uh, from that time period, so your description takes me right back to those old conversations. So thank you so much for that. Yeah. So how have you developed your career uh, from college and post college?
1: You know, I I could just say by the seat of my pants. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, you don't, you know, you. You don't go out in the world, I think with a master plan and then you know things get in the way. life gets in the way. Uh, so it's about making choices and sometimes they're not so good and sometimes they're better and um, but all 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 the way I think always in front of me, like the carrot on the stick was um you know, wanting to be an artist in, you know, in some way. And then, you know, when I was told in college that women could not be artists uh, by the professors, by the male professors I had, I decided then I would have to teach.
0: May I I ask, uh, where where did you go to college?
1: Um, Well, I went to maybe uh, several. I went to uh, what was um, Bremerton, went to college there an Olympic junior college, a community college, and then um, went to the University of Washington in Seattle, and then um, you know, took some courses when I lived in Houston, and then uh, went to Uh, Framingham State College, Worcester uh, College in Worcester, Mass. Graduated from Framingham State with a degree, with a teacher's degree. And then uh, moved here and went to the University of New Mexico for a master's. But when I came, uh, they told me that Indians didn't go to the fine arts, that Indians went to the art ed. And so I applied three times um to get into school here, I think it was the third time I applied that I finally did get in.
2: Hmm.
0: How was your experience once you were able to get to that program?
1: Tough. It was difficult. It was difficult for all the Indians. Went to school with Paul Belettle, who was Navajo, Emmy Whitehorse, who is Navajo, and... Um, You know, I formed a group called the Gray Canyon. Larry Emerson uh, picked out the name for the city streets and buildings uh, just so we could be supportive of each other and help each other. And we did shows together for about four years.
0: This actually this leads naturally to the next question is uh, on opportunities. Um, How... How did you seek opportunities uh, from, I'd say, even post college, and how do they come about now?
1: I, I would say to, you know, some, some artists that I've known in their late 80s, in their 90s, um, who I revere, always have a curiosity about everything around them in life. I find that, in in a way, is keeping the child within and um, it helps you express yourself. And I remember a saying by Picasso that um, he learned how to draw um, in a very professional way, I think by the time he was 16 or something, and then he said he spent the rest of his life learning how to be a child. And I think that that's true of a lot of the older artists that I know who make their work, to always be curious, always um, continue reading books, reading artist bios. I read Indian poetry, Native American poetry. Um, I always have a little pile of books by my bed by Native American writers. We have all these new young writers uh, coming out of IAIA, with their MFAs now, uh, like Tommy Orange, they're there. Like Teresa Mailhut, you know, of course, Sherman Alexie, um, you know, in the past. Um, we have lots of young writers coming up. And, of course, Hyde Erdrich just came out with a new book, mm-hmm. um, an anthology. Um, you know, and, of course, her sister um, is probably one of our... Uh, best well known. And Joy Harjo, of course, she's our poet laureate of the whole country. And oh, of yes. course, um, in the inauguration, uh, they didn't invite her to speak. And I was very upset about that because uh, it, she is our first Native American poet laureate of the whole country. And the young woman, Miss Gorman, who spoke was. Um, incredible. She read an incredible poem, but joy is incredible too. We could have had two speakers. And uh, so it's a missed opportunity. And I feel when they were talking about unity, they should have included America's First Peoples. So um, I've written several letters, one to the White House to remind them that we're here and uh, we need to be included in this idea of unity.
0: That's a great point. Thank you for doing that. It it, it is um, it's a consistent issue, uh, indigenous people being left out of the conversation, um, even on indigenous matters. Um, yeah, it's always, it's always an uphill battle. It feels.
1: That's what Joy said to me when I wrote to her.
2: Hmm.
1: We, I, I said to her, Joy, we have more work to do. She wrote back and she said that too. Hmm. It's an uphill battle. We have more work to do.
0: And I think it, it goes to the point of what we were talking about uh, before the, the beginning of this episode where uh, Indigenous Native American authors and writers uh, like Liz Skye with such a powerful young voice yes, and a fresh perspective that uh, is based in tradition and relationships. Yes. So to that point then, uh, what would you say to the 18 or the 22-year-old that is listening to this conversation?
1: Well, the first thing is always be curious. Uh, Read books, artist bios, go to museums. I mean, that's a real learning place. My son and I, when we've traveled to workshops and things, we always go to the museums Especially if we're in New York, we go to the museums. It's a real learning place, and we always look for um, if there's a Native section in the museum, even if it's like antiquities, we go there to see that. And um, you know, now because of COVID, we have um, we have uh, videos online a lot with. Artist lectures and, um, and uh, uh, you know, uh, tours of their studios, um, those kinds of things. Those are really interesting uh, to see how another artist lives. Those, those are important for us to know. As artists, we always want to know what other artists are doing. Well, this has
0: uh been an incredible experience. Thank you so much for your time and sharing this with us i we We haven't had too many um interviews where there's been a second person along, and so I just wanted to acknowledge Neil in this conversation. and I guess is there is there something that uh I may have missed in my questions that maybe uh, I should be asking or should be considering asking?
1: Well, we should we should have Neil talk to us about his, um, his role at IEIA and his life there. Also, he's right now um, involved in making a large sculpture uh, for a city gallery downtown that's all neon, but it's 10 feet high by 15 feet long. So he has, you know, things to say about that.
2: Well, that that sounds pretty good, though.
1: <laughs> I, you know, I would say
2: um, as a child growing up with an artist and, and watching all of this happen is, is an aspect of um, uh, art history that most people don't get. But the other piece of that is uh, it was Native, contemporary Native art history for that matter, that we had all these um, young um, Native artists coming through the house and... Um, spending time with us and maybe going to the powwow or something so we would see people on a regular basis and then so being nurtured through that and then also working as a studio assistant for a number of years in high school um as a as a straight artist I mean like I, I I think a really good question that a lot of people ask is you know what's it like being with a or working for or hanging out or being the child of a famous artist. And then the other side of that is the cultural aspect. And it, and it goes back and forth. It goes from being um, a child and, and not really understanding what culture is when you're growing up. You just know that things are normal in your house Mm -hmm. and that things are normal in other houses. You don't really realize what culture is until later. And so I would go out into the studio, and my mom would be drawing or something like that, and um, and I would just watch the lines and the mark making and listen to the pastel grind against the paper and um and that really formed a basis for me as an artist, and I think that's a very pure um, universal language, you know, like global, like planetary understanding of art. And then the cultural side was like having all these people come there was, there was always food and stories and there was activity and people were camped in the yard sometimes, you know, and, uh, and then we would go, uh, do installations and hang work. And, um, I went with Jean to New York, uh, for that. What was that show? That was, uh, uh Sweetgrass, Cedar and Sage, wasn't it?
1: Women, women of Sweetgrass, Cedar and Sage.
2: Women of Cedar, Sweetgrass, that the first, uh, indigenous native women's show that jean organized and um and that was back in the early 80s and um and i was there like you know in new york city like helping to hang the show and stuff Hmm. and um so it's been it's been uh an incredible journey it's been a a blessing because most people don't get that broad understanding so all this feeds to like what i I turn around and I give back to students at i a like the the things that I've learned and and how I understand and approach um, art and culture um, either separate or simultaneously is really important uh, especially at that that Indian institution you know mm-hmm.
1: well the other thing too um, is that uh, we used to go with my cousin who was married to a Blackfeet. Um, my cousin, who founded the tribal college, we would go up to outside of Browning to Badger Creek uh, and uh, live in a teepee for a couple of weeks, where there was no radio, no cell phone, no uh, no computers, no nothing, and um, and go through ceremonies. So um, all of our adventures with that for years we did that uh, were really important. Important influence, I think, over how we view life and, uh, you know, our closeness, you know, with our family. There, I think it
2: with, seems like, it seems like we we went to um Ocon's for over a decade. We did. Yeah.
1: That was a really important time, uh, to be with both, uh, Flathead and. Blackfeet people.
0: This uh, it just brings back memories of, of my growing up years um, you know with my family and the summer times you know people would come and stay with us you know and that's sort of the heart of the culture is the, the family uh, get-togethers and the meals shared and you know we go do powwows and, and, and all that but it was the the times in between all of that when family was connecting, uh, you know, me, you know, seeing the elders and hearing the old stories, and then just connecting with cousins as well.
1: Yes. Yes, and we're right now with COVID losing some of our elders, mm. which is, um, you know, we lose an encyclopedia every time we lose one.
2: I I think there's a really important aspect to that of of family or community gathering and that the the health and the well being of the community, no matter what's happening, you know, even if there's disaster and things are falling apart all around, um, the ability to to laugh, to tell stories and to find joy in life and and, and each other in, at that moment is it's so important and it's so healthy. And it's been really hard right now to be able to do that for a lot of communities. Uh, because of the virus but the sooner we get back to that the better
0: even thinking back to uh funerals back home you know it's a while heartbreaking yeah uh, any any time um yeah. you know then we have uh memorials and there's feeds and everything afterwards where there's just more stories shared and laughter
1: yeah
0: and um it's such a healing process yeah. and I think with COVID nineteen, um, it's sort of insidious that we're not able to gather like we could before. No, and so when we've lost somebody, yeah, I mean we've had to make it very quick and safe, mm-hmm. but we're we're missing that aspect of of connection.
1: Yes, yes, that's happening at home too. Uh, mm-hmm. They can't have a wake, and they can't have a, not a big feed because um, you know. It's just, as you say, it has to be something with just the immediate family and and uh, by themselves and quickly, too.
0: Hmm. I think if there's a silver lining, though, is I imagine there are going to be some pretty big memorials in a year or two. <laughs> I think people are going to be looking to, to connect again and, and to gather. And, you know, if, if we're safe to do that, I think it's going to be a very positive future for us.
1: Yes, I agree. Yes.
0: And so those are days to look forward to, for sure.
1: Yes, Um, I agree.
0: John, Neil, thank you so much for this. This was an absolute pleasure.
1: It It was an honor to be here with you, Joe. Thank you for inviting us.
0: Well, thank you for accepting. This is so wonderful.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us. And it's always great to hear my mom talk because I always learn something new, so it's really really fabulous oh you're never too old to keep learning
1: oh thank you neil <laughs> you know we have we have a we have a friend, Mario Carroll, who said he was uh out driving across uh the desert in some states in the middle of the night and um and he turned the radio on and he said, there was John and Neil doing a radio interview uh, that had been recorded. And he just laughed in the car all by himself, just getting such a kick out of that. that there we were out there in the middle of the night talking to him.
2: <laughs> well, we were probably hamming it up. Yeah. We, t- we tend to do that a lot.
1: Yeah, because we've done several of these now and they're recorded okay. and then they, they play them back.
2: Yeah, we did story core a while back
1: <laughs> yes oh, <okay. laughs> yes we did that yeah
0: oh that's great well i'm glad to be able to, to contribute uh to these recordings this is this is really great
1: yeah thanks joe thank you joe
0: And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank John and Neil for their time and sharing their story with us. To have John Quick to see Smith on this series is something that is so exciting and humbling at the same time. Um, it, really, it really does feel uh, more than just a community but a family, uh, the, the artists and the storytellers and the creators and everyone that's been on this series. Uh, it's it's amazing to hear the connection between her Oscar Howe and so many of the other uh, individuals that uh, I and you have come to know over the years and it just shows how connected we all are and so uh, very much uh, like we had stated in here this is family connecting and sharing stories and so uh, this episode has been um, very humbling and uh, so appreciated so thank you for that more importantly i do want to thank you the listener for joining us and spending your time listening to what what i feel is a very important story and perspective from our community so please join us uh, next week as we speak with another incredible person and having said that thank you for coming back uh, it's been two months uh, we are now in season two and we have a lot of exciting people lined up and i'm really looking forward to this year so that being said i'm joe williams you can find me on canna that's c-a-n-a-a creativity among native american artists on facebook or at the PlainsArt.org website and there you can see our programming our past videos and these podcasts so if you have a suggestion for someone for me to interview uh, please find us on facebook and message me i would really like to hear from you so take care and we will see you next week